Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. going to continue our study in the book of Revelation. We, for those of you guys who are, are visiting, we are um, once a month, the last Sunday of every month, we do what we call last Sundays. We have communion, we have the choir sing on the last Sunday of the month, and we study the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And so uh, we are going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And so today we are in chapter 2, verse one, and uh, we are looking at the church of Ephesus and that, that epistle that Christ wrote to the church at Ephesus, and I've entitled the message, A Love Grown Cold. Let's begin there uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Revelation 2, verse 1. This is the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, This is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. You also have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen? This is the Word of God. Father, we ask that you would just open our hearts and minds to the truth of your Word today. And whatever is proclaimed and preached as the truth of your Word, Lord God, we would submit our lives to it in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at these letters, we should not see them as statements of judgment or an attempt uh, at a guilt trip. Our Lord Jesus Himself wrote these letters as a result of His being in the midst of His church, in the midst of these seven golden lampstands, which represents His church. Uh, I have uh, uh, quite the imagination, and I picture a, an inspector walking through a home before this home is to be bought or sold. He's checking every detail. He's taking notes. What's working? What isn't working? What has been broken? What's running exceptionally well? And this inspector's conclusion would bring a recommendation then to the seller, fix this stuff or have this stuff fixed before you sell the house. And to the buyer, he might counsel them Unless this stuff is fixed, don't you dare buy this house. And this is essentially what's happening here in this scene. Jesus is walking among the seven golden lampstands, the churches. And as the omniscient inspector, who we know sees all and he knows all, he does not miss one tiny detail. Christ is inspecting these churches, and specifically in this letter, the church at Ephesus. And he's asking, what is working? What isn't working? What is broken? What needs to be fixed or mended? And what, if anything, is worth commendation? Furthermore, what is worth a recommendation or counsel to straighten out, as I said, before Christ must act and remove their lampstand, remove their influence in the world. Because what did we learn earlier in our, in our last, our few prior uh, passages that we read is that Christ will purify His 
true church. He will purify His true church. So first, I would like us this morning to look at the storied background of this church at Ephesus, a very important church, and the details I find fascinating. I think you will as well. It's a rich history that led them to their condition at the point in which this letter was written. If you uh, take notes, write down Acts 18. I'm going to go through a few things here. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. We see in Acts 18 that the preliminary work for this church and its beginning was done by Aquila and Priscilla, as well as the, um, a man who was known to be a great teacher of the Old Testament, Apollos, that we know has been mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians as we studied there. In Acts 19, Paul, on his third missionary journey, met a group of followers of John the Baptist who had only known the baptism of repentance. So if you can imagine, these men had not yet heard about Jesus, about the cross, about the resurrection, about His ascension. They hadn't heard anything. They were just followers of John. They couldn't text one another or hop on their cell phone or Google it, right? These guys were out there doing the work of the ministry as disciples of John the Baptist. And so we see this unfold. And in Acts 19, Paul shares the gospel with these men. He baptizes them in the name of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 19.5, they had their own little private uh, small Pentecost there together as they received the Holy Spirit. This was the infancy of Paul's personal work in founding this church in Ephesus, and he stayed there, the Bible says, for three years. And you find that in Acts 20, uh, verse 31, three years. We're going to look at that in a few minutes as well. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a noteworthy moment that I find to be quite fascinating in the ministry of Paul and the elders who were appointed at this church in Ephesus, and it's in Acts 20. And I'm going to paraphrase a portion of it for you, but I would like you, if you would like to turn there, you can kind of turn there and, and follow along as I paraphrase. I believe personally this was a pivotal moment for the leadership and the trajectory of that church there in Ephesus, that it changed them. This moment changed the trajectory of that Ephesian church. You see, Paul had felt called to go to Jerusalem. And he didn't know for certain what was ahead of him in Jerusalem, but he mentions in verse 22 and 23 that the Holy Spirit had impressed upon him that in every place that he had gone, the Holy Spirit was impressing upon him that once he was in Jerusalem, that chains and affliction awaited him there. So he called the elders of the church at Ephesus, and rather than going to Ephesus, he asked them to meet him in Miletus. And so the elders from Ephesus traveled to meet Paul in Miletus so that he could see them one last time and encourage them. And honestly, as I read through this, it's a pretty heart-wrenching scene for all of these men who had given their lives in service to God. And I'm paraphrasing, but again, you can read through this. But he told them basically, you know that I was with you the whole time and during trial, persecution, surviving those who plotted to kill me, and I never shrinked back. I told you everything, even the things that made Paul unpopular and caused him to be hated among the people. In verse 24, he says, I do not hold my life as dear to me, and essentially, I just want to finish my calling. I just want to finish my mission. I want to keep preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for as long as I'm here. And then in verse 25, he tells them these people that he loves, he's telling them this will be the last time that you see my face because he will likely die in Jerusalem. So he's about to give them some, if you will, some famous last words to these gentlemen that he has served shoulder to shoulder with and these men of God that he loved dearly. He says, guys, this is important. This is something that you need to remember. This is your example, okay? 
And then he proceeds to tell them in verses 26, 27, and 28, I testify to you today, I have said everything that needed to be said, I have no blood on my hands. What did he mean by that? He's preached the gospel to everybody he came in contact with. He will not be held accountable for anyone that he came into contact with, that the Holy Spirit did not lead him to, to share the gospel with, and he shared the gospel with him. He had a free and clear conscience. I worked hard for the Lord. Again, I didn't shrink back. I was not a coward. I taught the whole purpose of God, every bit of God's plan from the creation all the way to the consummation, I told everyone, and I told them everything. And now, guys, in my absence, I charge you to do the same. I charge you to do the same. Let's read there in Acts 20, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, the elders to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So to these Ephesian elders, he says, these are precious blood-bought sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, the flock of God. Protect them and guard them. Don't let anything through that would hurt them or damage the body of Christ in Ephesus. In Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So guys, after I'm gone, and they know I'm gone, wolves are going to come in. False teachers will arise from among you, and they'll try to make a name for themselves, and they will try to tear your beloved church apart. So don't blink. Don't give them one single inch of foothold. Continue to do what I have done and guard them, protect them. Acts 20, 31, therefore be watchful, remembering. Now listen to the way he describes his ministry there. Remembering that night and day, that's 24-7, For a period of three years, I did not cease. He never stopped to admonish each one with tears. That's how important it was. Be watchful, he said. Remember what I did and do that. I did not cease night and day to make a case to contend for the truth to the the point that I was often moved to tears when telling you the truth, knowing that this threat would come in among you after I left. Kind of sounds to me like it was a big deal to Paul. And this was his last act, the last time he saw these men from this church at Ephesus. He felt it necessary to make it a big deal, to really sear this in their mind for those elders at Ephesus. And then in verses 32 through 38, he says his goodbyes. And and this isn't necessarily part of the message, but I just find that it's comforting to see how much these folks loved one another. Acts 20, 32, And now I commend you to God, he says, and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who have been sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to those who were with me. In everything I showed you that by laboring in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud. And falling on Paul's neck, they were kissing him, being in agony, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. If you can imagine, they... They wept together as they knew it would be the last time they saw their brother and they walked him to the ship to see him off. What a scene. But he says, in that moment, guard the flock. Be warned, protect these precious people from wolves, the ones that would come in and destroy and lead them astray. This church had some very strong beginnings other than the Apostle Paul. 
some very godly and impactful leaders in this early church. We know that Timothy served there. Tychicus served there as well. We can't forget the Apostle John, the writer of the Revelation, also uh, served there for a time. He was the lead elder at Ephesus up and right up until his arrest and exile to the Isle of Patmos. And the church at Ephesus was also instrumental in spreading the gospel all over that entire region. In Acts 19, we see that Paul was God's appointed apostle. And his ministry at that time was accompanied with great signs, miracles, and wonders. This was, as you read in Scripture, was not something that actually continued with this kind of frequency or with such dramatic fashion as it did in that time at Ephesus. But uh, as we see and read about Paul and his ministry as he ages and and we get further into that uh, apostolic age, Later on in his missionary journey, there were some of his own companions, his traveling companions that, uh, that he left behind. Uh, he actually writes that Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus, all right? And that doesn't negate the fact that early on in his early ministry, God used Paul in mighty ways in this region. Also noteworthy that I think sometimes we get wrong is we picture every single believer at that time running around doing those kinds of miracles, and that just was not the case. It was these men of God, these apostles who were called to perform these kinds of miracles. And Scripture is very clear to say, quote, it was at the hand of the apostles. This was proving that these men were God's chosen men, okay? And... There were miracle healing hankies, I like to call them. There were aprons and even uh, pieces of clothing of Paul's that were sent to people and they were healed and evil spirits were even driven out by these things. Those who had been involved in satanic and occultic practices, uh, likely some who had previously been possessed, came and confessed uh, their sin and gave themselves to Christ. This was a major revival, a genuine revival that was going on. They destroyed their idols and they brought their books of magic and they burned their books of magic in front of everyone and there were accountants in the crowd and they actually tallied up um, how much money all of those books had been, would have been worth had they not burned them. One interesting story uh, here in this region of Ephesus was these Jewish exorcists They're mentioned in verse 13 of chapter 19. It says, quote, They went from place to place and attempted to invoke over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I implore you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So there were these Jewish exorcists who weren't even followers of Christ that would go out and try to cast demons out of people. Verse 14 mentions, Now seven sons of the one named Sceva, who is a Jewish chief priest, they were doing this. Verse 15, And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then look what happens. And the man... That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, anybody an exorcist in the crowd? I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? Verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, subdued all of them, all six of them, and utterly prevailed against them. That's a kind way to say he beat the dog out of them. And they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So he beat them to the point that they ran ran out of the house, all six of them wounded and beaten. To be sure, as we see in these passages, there were some pretty dramatic things happening in the early days of this church at Ephesus. The preaching of the gospel was so effective, it spread from Ephesus all over Asia Minor during those first two years. And all of these other letters that are written in this uh, chapter of Revelation, these few chapters of Revelation, all of these other churches were planted in the wake of this church at Ephesus. Okay? 
So this was the background of this mighty church at Ephesus. And now the all-seeing inspector of his church has written a letter specifically to this church at Ephesus. And you can divide this letter into a series of what I would call commendations. And these were positive things that Christ had to say about the church. There's a correction. This is one thing that this church uh, was doing wrong and they needed to correct or face the consequences. And then followed by counsel. Essentially, if you do this, then you will fulfill my purpose for you and there will be eternal reward in it. So let's begin with a series of seven things of which Christ gives high marks to the church at Ephesus. The first one is stated here in verse uh, 2. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. And that word deeds is ergon. It describes action, enterprise, an undertaking, an endeavor. This is a strong implication that the Ephesus church was a very active church. They were very involved in God's business. They were a thriving church, a growing church, a busy church, and not just for the sake of being busy, but because as a whole, the people there understood that what they were doing was as unto the Lord, that they were doing it recognizing the authority of Christ in His church, and they were doing their works, their deeds for Christ. Sometimes churches get a bad reputation for being too busy and having too many programs, and I get that. Sometimes we have programs like crazy, and it's just constant, you know, this, that, and the other going on. And so there's some le legitimacy to that sometimes. When I was a kid, I was in church, um, I mean, every morning for Sunday school, Sunday morning for Sunday school. Then we had worship at 11. Four o'clock in the afternoon was training union. Uh, six o'clock was worship again uh, in the evening. We had Wednesday night Bible study. We had youth group. We had various Bible studies off and on throughout the week. We had uh, like Disciple Now weekends. We had youth camps and all this other stuff. And on top of that, we would do what we called visitation, where we actually knocked on people's doors in neighborhoods, introduced ourselves, prayed with them, witnessed to them, shared the gospel with them. That was the way of life when I was a kid. And over the years, over the last 35, uh, 40 years since I was a kid, did I say 35 or 40? It's more like 15. Um, I've seen a shift in the church. I've seen a shift from, you know, where it used to be very active and busy and the, and the body of Christ was together. Often, now we have pretty much a Sunday morning and like we're a church plant. So we have to rent this facility and we try to get together as often as we can. But there are certain things that are necessary for us to be able to get together, Right. But what are the excuses of all the other churches out there who have buildings and close their doors on Sunday night, who don't have Wednesday night Bible studies, all of that? I think that's something to think about, right? Um, when, when we're together, we're learning together, we're growing together, we're bearing one another's burdens, we're encouraging one another, and that's the goal as we move forward, but the question is, if we're not together, if the churches aren't together during those times, are they actually doing the same types of things that they would be doing if they were together with their brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we actually studying God's Word together? Are we witnessing to people? Are we doing the things that we would have done with our brothers and sisters? Or are we, uh, you know, like binging TV shows or you know, going to the lake or all those things. And as I said, th this is not judgment. This is not, you know, trying to put a guilt trip on people. The question is, are we as active in the body that we should, in a way that we should be, in order to impact the world around us the way that we would like to? I just believe the church's priorities in many ways have shifted. And honestly, I'm, I'm guilty myself. So I'm I'm looking in the mirror. But I think oftentimes our stuff is more important than God's stuff, right? Our stuff is more important than God's stuff. And I think we should take stock often instead of uh, 
engaging in our things, the things that we have deemed the priority, the things that we have deemed most necessary, the things that may not have any eternal value. Maybe it's time that we take stock as the church and begin to change our priorities and shift it more toward the eternal reward of the gospel and how that can affect people's lives. So this was the case for the church at Ephesus. They were all about God's business, and he commended them for that. The second commendation is that he knows their toil. They toiled, and this word toil is the word kopos, and it's different from the word that we just learned, which is ergon, which would be deeds. You could say it more clearly like this, in toil they did their deeds. They did their work in toil by the sweat of their brow. Their work actually cost them something. It, it came with a price. They answered that question in the song, the choir saying, Am I a soldier of the cross? Their answer would be yes. There was sacrifice involved. This endeavor for the Lord was not trivial. It was not incidental. It was not a weekend endeavor. This calling, this work was worth giving their all. And no matter what it costs them, and believe me, if we read church history, it costs them. The third commendation our Lord commends them for is their perseverance. No matter how the Ephesian church was persecuted, trampled on, beaten down, or discouraged, they did not give up. As my granny would say, they kept on keeping on. The word is best described as triumphant, like a victorious fortitude. It doesn't matter the circumstances, we're going to keep plugging away one step after another. They stayed with it. They rolled with the punches and they grew together as a local body and spiritually in the Lord, they grew despite the circumstances around them. The fourth commendation Christ gives the church at Ephesus, we see uh, this lasting legacy of the Apostle Paul uh, and what we just covered in his meeting with those elders there in Miletus. He says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. They were sensitive to those who would infiltrate the local church body with wrong intentions, the wrong heart, the wrong agenda. And obviously, folks, evil comes in many different forms. And there are those who have very obvious issues of sinfulness and rebellion, acting in the flesh and loving the world. And we know that Scripture tells us that if you act and continue in willful sinfulness, that more than likely you don't belong in the body of Christ, that you're truly not converted, but rather you are a false convert. But then in the fifth commendation to the church at Ephesus, John mentions that there's also the issue of those who would dress like the sheep, look like the sheep. They would do all the right things and say all of the right things, and instead of being led by the Holy Spirit, they're led by their own arrogance their pride and their need for power, their need to have people who follow them, who listen to them, and who value them, and, and who value what they do, kind of this status that they want to have within the body of Christ. And there are many different species of predators who dress like the sheep, and there are a few different ways we find that they infiltrate the body of Christ in this passage. There are wolves, Paul called them. Uh, he, and he warned these Ephesian elders about. And folks, I mean, my dad was a church planter and a pastor, and I grew up in the church. And I got to tell you, there were wolves in every single church I had ever been a part of. Every single one, there were wolves in the churches. And this is why I personally, I seek the, I seek the Lord's guidance in discerning which men ought to be involved in leadership in the church. When I did church training, uh, church planting training, one of the first things that they drilled into you over and over was you need to be careful who you place in leadership as an elder because you will wind up damaging the church. You put the wrong man in a leadership position who has the wrong agenda and it's going to hurt the church and damage the church. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's clear throughout the whole of Scripture that it is the responsibility of the pastor and the elders of a local church to protect the flock. Remember what Paul said that we read already? He says they're going to come in among you, so from the outside in, and then he says they're going to rise up from within your own ranks. 
that these men are going to arise from within your ranks. So you see that we must be warned and we must be on watch, okay? Paul's advice to these, I find this amazing, Paul's advice to these elders from Ephesus was heeded. They took his advice seriously. They took it to heart. And we see the result here in this letter in Revelation. We get to see Paul's legacy from that meeting and from his ministry for three years, 40 years after the fact in this letter. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 2b. He says, You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. These men purported to be apostles, but they were phonies. And so these elders tested these men, and they raised up new elders who did the same. They would charge them with doing the same, test these men, and find the ones who are false to be false. And they were on top of this. They practiced church discipline. Those who were evil or aligned with the agenda of men or the enemy, they were not allowed to hang around for long. This is essential for the purity of any church. And the popular philosophy today is to make the church as palatable to the world as possible, right? Their goal is to get as many people in here, pack them in, fill the seats, no matter what it takes, let's just get them in here. And that kind of pragmatism doesn't work. As a matter of fact, it damages the church. You can't bring the world into the church and expect them to be godly. When you bring the world into the church, you make the church worldly. Charles Spurgeon said, The church which the world likes best is sure to be that which God abhors. Why would he say that? Because while a pure church is a powerful church, a worldly church is a weak church. A biblical church is a bold church, but a compromised church is a corrupt church. The sixth thing that Christ commends the Ephesians for is in contrast to what they cannot bear. He says, you cannot bear evil men, you cannot bear false apostles and liars, but they've had to bear their cross. They die to self. They bear the burden of ministry, their toil. They bear persecution. They make it all about Jesus and His glory and not about themselves. Now, if you meet a self-proclaimed Christian and they bear no cross for the Lord, it's likely that they could be a false convert. And look, I don't walk around questioning who's saved and who's not. That's completely, completely and totally up to the Lord. But Jesus did say that by their fruit you will know them. That if they're bearing no fruit and you got to be careful as to what you design, or I'm sorry, define as fruit, if you define fruit in the wrong way, then you're going to think numbers and, and you know, influence and, and social media footprint and all that kind of stuff is fruit. That's not fruit. Fruit is the gospel and the fruits of the Spirit. Are people getting saved? Are people growing in the Lord? Are they walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? But I love this quote by Steve Lawson. He says, In a counterfeit conversion, there is no death to self, no submission to the Lordship of Christ, no taking up a cross, no obedience in following Christ, no fruit of repentance, only empty words, shallow feelings, and barren religious activities. On the contrary, with a true conversion, sin is abhorred, the world is renounced, pride is crushed, self is surrendered, faith is exercised, Christ is seen as precious, and the cross is embraced as one's only saving hope. Amen? The description of the true conversion describes these Ephesian believers. Look at verse 3. He says, You have perseverance and have endured for what? For my name's sake. It's all for Him. They did it all for Him. And you also have not grown weary. They didn't grow uh, weary in doing good, in doing what they were called to do. The seventh commendation is down in verse 6, and we're going to cover that in the order that Christ covers it, because I think there's a reason for it. But according to this letter, to this point, this church at Ephesus was a dynamic, active, hardworking, sacrificial, orthodox, true gospel 
church. And it looked on the surface as if they had all their ducks in a row and everything was great. They had their stuff all together, which must have made the next statement of Christ's correction that much more of a sucker punch, a punch to the gut, the kind of thing that for these folks must have knocked the very wind out of them, took their breath away when they heard Jesus write these words, I have this against you. It's one thing to deal with people who disagree with you, people who you may consider even to be your critics, who take pot shots at you and say things about you. But what is more difficult is when someone you love or respect has something against you and they say something about you. But when you see that Jesus, the creator of all things, the one who gave himself for you and purchased you, purchased you by his own precious blood, say, I have this against you, you tend to wake up and take notice. And it comes as a devastating blow if in fact that is what's leveled at us. And I'm sure that's the way they felt. I have this against you that you have left your first love. The first love is not a statement that we often use as we use it as a, uh, something in sequential order, right? My first love. It was, you know, a long time ago. He was my first love. That's, that's not what this is saying. First love in this uh, way is described as early love. Perhaps some of you remember the early love you had with your husband or your wife. I'm going to get to see little hearts floating above all your heads as you remember back to those early days of your love. The things that that sparked and soon fanned the flames of your love with one another at the very beginning. Overwhelming joy, the, the enthusiasm that didn't wane, right? You, you wanted to be the first, or I'm sorry, the last person who said, I love you on the phone before you hung up. And hanging up the phone was so difficult. You just didn't want to hang up the phone and you couldn't wait to talk to them again. And, and even more so, you couldn't wait to see them again. If ever there was miles apart, right? And there was, a, there was distance. You just wanted to be with them all the time. Before you saw them again, you would get nervous and your heart would beat out of your chest. And when you did see them, there would be all these little butterflies in your stomach. I don't know if I'm describing you. I'm describing the way that I know I felt, and I, I know Krista felt. <laughs> These were not just trivial things on the surface, though. I don't, I'm not describing a shallow sort of uh, love here, a, a shallow um, infatuation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this kind of commitment and love that you feel in your bones, the fire in your belly where you're absolutely committed. And... And if anyone were to try to keep you from one another, well, then the attitude, it's, babe, it's me and you against the world, right? I don't care if we have to take on the whole world. We're staying together no matter what. Nothing can stop our love. And I dare anyone to try and douse this romantic fire that we have, you know, together. That kind of love is what we're talking about. The true test of an enduring love, though, is the threat that comes slowly creeping in the menial and mundane daily uh, acts of life. The minutes that tick on the clock. And it has the, it has the potential to slowly, coal by coal, quench the fire in a love that is not genuine. Ladies, if your husband were to come to you, or men, if your wife were to come to you and say these words, they say, look, I'm committed to you. I understand your position in this marriage. I respect your position in this marriage. I will do the things that need to be done. I will live here in this house with you. I will raise our children with you. I will make sure that everything is done the way it's supposed to be done in perfect order. I will do all of the things that I did in the beginning of our marriage. But I do not love you anymore. You do not inspire me. I do not 
get one ounce of fulfillment from you or our relationship. As far as my actions, again, I'll get the job done. Even though we live in the same house, I will seek my own purpose and my own fulfillment, and I will find it apart from you. If your spouse came up and told you that, that would be devastating. And this is the seriousness of what Christ is leveling at this church at Ephesus. You're saying all of the right things. You, you tell people that you love me. You talk about me. You're doing all of the right things as far as your busyness and activity. You're so busy, so active in all of the right ways, but you seek to find your fulfillment in this life apart from me. You seek to find the joy of life apart from me. You are searching for purpose in this life apart from me. And where, where has your early love gone? You've forgotten your first love. Christ used to be their everything, an unquenchable fire. It was the church versus the critics, it was the church versus the world. The gospel proclaimed. Christ used to be what defined them, what drove them. Christ was their daily passion. And now it's like they lived in the same space, doing all of the same things, but the quality of their love was gone. Their devotion was devoid of His passion and His purpose for them. How easy it is for us to do the exact same thing. We have the church thing over here and the religious thing over here. I'm going to do His stuff on these days, but I'm going to do my stuff over here. And instead of Christ permeating everything that we do, slowly but surely, our first love begins to wane. We have to be careful. We have to be about His business for His purposes. And here's the correction. Therefore, Revelation 2.5, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like? That's the goal. Get back there again and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Not just the deeds... But first love deeds, the things that drove you, the passion that you had, the reason you did it then was for the right reasons. Now you just do the work, you're busy. But do the first love deeds that you did in the beginning and repent. Because if not, I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. A harsh correction. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your light. You will lose your influence. You will lose your relevance. Your existence will be lifeless. It will be fruitless. And the purpose of the church in that local body will be pointless. Much like we learn in Laodicea that you have no purpose. You're neither hot nor cold. Therefore, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is what the Lord had against them. But He did not leave them crumpled on the floor, gasping for air, he followed up immediately with another word of encouragement. He says, I have this against you, yes, but there's still hope. You still have hope. So Christ follows up his correction with another commendation. He says, yet this you, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we can't know exactly what this means to the point of being dogmatic or certain about the Nicolaitans because search the history books, search the Bible, and there's nothing specifically that lines out what the Nicolaitans believe. But I believe there's enough information in Scripture, there are clues around it that I think we can figure it out or at least get pretty close. What were the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Why would God hate these deeds? Why would Christ hate them? What were they doing? What was their doctrine? What was their error? And as you might know, there's, again, various possibilities, but we find clues in the letter to the church of, of uh, Pergamos in chapter 2, verse 15. He writes, Thus you also have some in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, 
Well, the key here is in the words in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, you look to the verses prior. Verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. If you go back and read that story, Balaam seduced God's people into idolatry. He seduced God's people into immorality. And he posed as a true prophet when he had already made errors to the point that made him a false prophet. Instead of leading people to godliness, he led them to sin and idolatry and immorality. So that's what Balaam did. So then in verse 15, it says, Thus you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Looks like whatever Balaam did then is what the Nicolaitans did as well. If you really want to drill down, the word Nicholas comes from two Greek words, Nike, where we get Nike, and it means to conquer. And then you get uh, the word people, which is laos. And the word means one who conquers the people. Well, if you look at the Old Testament and you look at the word Balaam in Hebrew, it means destroyer of the people. So there is a comparison that's being, a likeness that's being drawn here between Balaam and the Nicolaitans. All right? This error involves someone who leads the people into destructive sin because of false teaching, because of twisting the gospel, leading people into three dangerous areas. And folks, we don't need any help, do we? So when you get somebody in a place of authority speaking and, and teaching things that would help sway you in one direction or the other, then it gets really dangerous. You have men standing in the pulpit or standing in a place of authority and encouraging fleshly or worldly sin or encouraging legalism in the body of Christ or encouraging idolatry by creating another gospel, another spirit, or another Jesus. They use all the same verbiage, all of the same uh, wording, Jesus, the Spirit, and the gospel, but it's another gospel. And they are idols, just the same. And once again, it connects back with the pleading of Paul to those elders in the church at Ephesus when he says, Night and day I pleaded with you for three years in tears. It was so important to him to warn them. And this is the legacy that endured in the hearts of these people at Ephesus. They were faithful in holding to the truth. They did not endure evil men. They exposed and ejected the imposters. And so Christ writes, Yes, you are an active, dynamic church, but I have one thing against you, and it's no small, insignificant thing. You have lost the passion and purpose that, that drove you in your early love, yet hope remains because you are so committed to the truth of God's Word. You are so committed to the truth of God's Word. And if you're committed to the truth of God's Word, if that's your focus, if that's the core of who you are, and you can always go back to God's Word, it doesn't matter if you get into error now and then. If you always go back to God's Word, God's Word will realign you with God's purpose and passions. He says in Revelation 2, 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to close the letter, Jesus gives them counsel. Very simple. Very simple. Just listen. Listen what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Listen what the Word of God is saying to the body of Christ. Do we let it go in one ear and out the other? Or do we leave this place and allow the Word of God to move around inside of our heart and mind and we come to the realization that there are things in our lives that we need to realign with His passion and His purpose in our life. He's saying, hear these words. And then 7b, He says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that word, overcome, we're going to see that repeated over and over in these letters. And it always refers to the same person. And there's no mystery here. Overcomer is just a believer in Jesus Christ. It's just a reference to a true, blood-bought, faith-filled woman or man of God. 
That's what an overcomer is. And it comes with this promise, beautiful promise. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Once again, a reminder from our Lord Jesus that our reward is not anything that we get in this temporal, broken world. If you're putting your stock in gaining status or wealth or fame or anything that this world has to offer, then you're barking up the wrong tree. His reward is eternal. It's provision in the presence of Jesus Himself. And let me just boil it right down for you. I'm certain whatever the rewards that He gives to us is going to be amazing. But Christ is the reward. Being in the presence of Christ is our reward. I don't want anything else. I'll take it, but Christ is my reward. He says this to the church at Ephesus and to his church today, folks. Keep your perspective, your passion, and your purpose on the eternal. Do not be distracted by this temporal, fallen world and all of its circumstances and all of the craziness going on around you. We must be about our Father's business. Do not let your early love, your first love, grow cold. And if we do this and we give ourselves to Him, through Christ, we are overcomers. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.